0: Lord, we thank you for your choice servant, Clint Dobson. And we would be your servants too. So allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Pardon the abrupt transition. Chicken, chicken, chicken. Which combo are you picking? These are the words with which you are greeted over the intercom in the drive through line at Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers. Having been schooled by my 14-year-old son, 8th grader, Andrew, I know how to respond on his behalf. It's a well-oiled response. He doesn't use the word please, but I do. So here it goes. May I please have a box combo with no fries, extra toast, no slaw, extra sauce, and a Dr. Pepper with no ice. That's the drill. I am then told by the drive through attendant how much the combo cost, which I think is far too much for fast food, and I am invited to drive around to the second window for payment and pickup. This is the drill at Raising Cane's. Well, I fear that Andrew has become a so-called caniac, He even has a Caniac club card. He's not especially interested in it, but I am because from time to time they download free stuff. And free is good. At least, often, it's good. Fine dining it is not. But he and other like-minded Caniacs are ever bit as passionate about their newfangled chicken as old school Baptist pastors were and perhaps are about their potluck dinners. Keynes claims that their one love is chicken fingers. To be sure, their faithful clientele, which includes my dad, loves their love. As for myself, I avoid eating fried chicken whenever possible, be it at Cain's or elsewhere. But I have been smitten by Cain's one love slogan. You drive through and you see it, one love pardon, another abrupt transition. In recent weeks, I've been poring over and pondering 2 Corinthians. I've been doing so in search of a suitable sermon. This semester, your professors are preaching in chapel when we don't have guests uh, from this letter. And truthfully, as I've poured over 2 Corinthians, I've been like a kid in a candy shop. Uh, I want to preach on this text and that text and that text and this, but uh, ultimately you, you have to choose, don't you? As I say to students in Scriptures 4, Sunday comes around pretty often and this is, I gather, Sunday. Time and again, though, I've been drawn back to a passage within the letter that has captured my attention ever since I was a teenager. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 5? It's there that I'd like to begin reading in verse 6. And I'd like to continue through 6-2. Sometimes the framers of our verses and chapters didn't know when to stop and start. Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing while that we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what has been done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. But we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are also made manifest in your consciences, We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, perhaps a uh, a slogan used against Paul, he's out of his mind. It is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their sins against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become The righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we urge you also not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is no shortage of suggestions as to what drove Paul. That is, what made him tick. And as it happens, not a few people are ticked off at the apostle for any number of reasons. And they posit that ignoble motivations spurred him to action. Rather predictably, for example, the Prussian philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche asserted that, and I quote, What Paul wanted was power. With Saint Paul, the priest again aspired to power. He could make use only of concepts, doctrines, symbols with which masses may be tyrannized over and with which herds are formed. Or so said Nietzsche. For Paul's part, he regarded himself as grasped by Christ. What made him tick? Well, he had been taken over, as it were, by Christ, and he saw himself as crucified with, empowered by, a Christ who lived in Him, loved Him, and gave Himself for Him. It was the depth of God's love made manifest in Christ's gracious, vicarious, efficacious death that was the driving force of Paul's life. And one gathers that Nietzsche, the son of a Lutheran pastor, had heard as much, despite his less than charitable and sympathetic conclusions. One wonders if he not unlike the pre-Christian Paul, was kicking against the goads. In any event, even as there is animated conversation regarding what motivated Paul, there is lively discussion surrounding the center of the apostles' theology, supposing that he had one. But when the smoke clears, no offense to Pope Francis, and the dust settles, one can do far worse than to suggest that Christology is at once the core and the crux of Paul's theology, the heart of the matter. One recalls that he wrote to the Corinthians earlier, I delivered to you that which was of first importance, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised according to the Scriptures. It's often suggested that true it is a Christological community. I don't know about you, but I hope that that's true. And to the extent that it is, we stand on the shoulders and in the shadow of the Apostle, much maligned by many, greatly admired by more. As you might have heard, I fall into the latter category. In the passage before us this morning, existential theological and missional claims and concerns coalesce in Christ. Christological convictions pulsate throughout this text and they provide the Apostle foundation, motivation, and unction. An old word that should be rehabilitated. Unction in mission. Indeed, Paul makes no less than ten significant statements concerning Christ as well as Christian life and ministry in the text that we've read together, which in turn is part of a larger, lengthier discussion regarding Paul's ministry, which commences in 2.14 and doesn't conclude until 6.10. The Apostle's Christological claims and his ministerial remit are woven so tightly together in this text that they form, as it were, a single story. But I want us to pull out and look at a few threads. So allow me to state briefly and elaborate briefer yet upon these 10 threads. Rest assured, I'm not about to preach a 10-point sermon, lest you succumb to exhaustion, but Drs. Gregory Glower and Wiles tell me that every sermon should have at least one point. So I think the point, I hope the point is one love, but even still, 10 points are not sufficient. For our inexhaustible subject, for as Gerard Manley Hopkins captures poetically as in his As Kingfishers Catch Fire, Christ plays in ten thousand places. Let's begin in five fourteen. It's here where Paul propounds that the love of Christ prompts him to press on soon a cane. Interesting, only two times occurring in all of Paul, but the idea is it compels him. And it leads him to a a conviction that Christ died for all and that in him all have died. That is, so all might share in the benefits of his crucifixion. Paul's understanding of the atonement is neither as limited nor as limitless as some of his erstwhile interpreters have imagined. For Paul... Christ's death is for all, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But people need a preacher. Who shall we send? Who will go for us? The apostle believed that not only did Christ die for all, but he died for all people, that people might live for him. Paul elaborates further upon this contention in Romans 14. You know the text. For we do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that the Lord might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Additionally, Paul declares that life in Christ affords and offers a new orientation. Although Paul says that he once perceived people, even Christ, katasarka, according to the flesh, and he contends that the superlative apostles with whom he is at odds still perceive folks and faith in that way. Paul exclaims that a new day has dawned. A new day with a new hue. The external temporal ought now give way to the eternal. Internal. For we are not to look at the things which are seen, Paul says. But at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things that are not seen are eternal. And we are to walk by faith, not by sight. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old have passed away. The new things have come. Isaiah 65, 17-25, Envision a day when Yahweh will create a new heavens and a new earth. Paul regarded life in Christ, salvation, As nothing less than God's remaking of the world and remolding of humanity where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male and female. It's not as if though these distinctions are eradicated, but they're relativized, relativized to the extent that they no longer matter in the new kingdom. This new kingdom is being brought about by God. And God continues to bring about this revelatory and reconciliatory act through Christ. It is in and through Christ that God makes all things new. Paul again in Romans 5, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by His life. What is more, God forgives sin through Christ, who, knowing no sin, became sin on our behalf. Paul says that the sinless Jesus enables sinful people to become righteous and to behave righteously before God. Paul articulates this profound Christological truth in this manner later in the letter. You recall, as he's enjoining the Corinthians to contribute to the Jerusalem collection, that is, for the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. He doesn't reach for some piddly percentage, but he says... Take this Christological example. That though he was rich, he became poor, so that in and through his poverty, you might become rich. Building upon Paul, not a few of the church fathers, this is for Wilhite, including Irenaeus and Athanasius, maintained that Christ became who we are, so that we might become who He is. It has been said that we become like that which we love, If we love what is base, we become base. If we love what is, or in this case, who is noble, we become noble. Like knows like. All the while, God has entrusted the ministry and message of reconciliation through Christ to fallible messengers, jars of clay, as it's been said, cracked pots, We do well to model the apostle by not losing heart in the midst of ministry. He begins chapter 4, we do not lose heart. He concludes chapter 4, we do not lose heart. Even as we are not to lose heart, we're to fear the Lord and we're to seek to persuade others. Paul says, we beg of you regarding the one who was crucified in weakness and raised by the very power of God. And as God's co-workers, we do well to join the Apostle in urging people, whether Corinthians or Wacoans or Arlatinians, however you pronounce that, not to receive God's grace in vain. And to realize, drawing upon Isaiah nine eight, that now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation in and through Christ. So if you hear his voice, as Hebrews reminds, don't harden your heart but respond. And indeed, as believers and ministers, whether we are at home in the uh, the body or away from the body with the Lord, more on that next week with Dr. Gregory, I would much rather go before him than after. You know what I'm saying? We too should make it our aim to please Christ. For in due time, in God's good time, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. So this remarkable passage is woven into a story of Christology and ministry. To repeat and to summarize, Paul's Christological and mythological convictions expressed in this passage arise from and are reinforced by a strong sense Of union with the Lord. He sensed that he had been grasped by him. And he desired to grasp the one by whom he was grasped. This Lord who loved him. And gave himself for him. The apostles one love for one Lord. Allowed him to give his one life for one aim. To please him. Such focus and purpose in ministry is exemplary. We do well to follow Paul's example as he followed the example of Christ. Amatio Pali can result in an imitatio Christi. Well, the day would come, church tradition tells us, when Paul would give his life out of love for his Lord. The sarcophagus said to be Paul's at the Roman Basilica known as St. Paul outside the walls, bears the epitaph, Paolo Apostolo Marti, that is, Apostle Paul, martyr. Paul knew in life and in death that love so amazing, so divine, demands our life, our soul, our all. We too should know in life and death that he paid much too high a price for us, The blood, the tears, the pain. To have our hearts just stirred at times. But never truly change. He deserves a fiery love that won't ignore his sacrifice. Because he paid much too high a price. The apostle declared that Christ's love controlled and consumed him. And so the question comes full circle. What compels and constrains us? Anything less than an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ and for those for whom he died is too little. Given our conviction that these matters matter for both time and eternity, we should not be chicken to talk turkey with one another regarding the gospel message and our motives in the midst of ministry. After all, It's not fast food we're serving up for heaven's sake. May we be able to say with the Apostle, thanks be to God who always leads us to triumph in Christ, albeit at the end of the train as war one booty, and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Paul asks, who is adequate for these things? Paul answers, God is adequate and he makes us adequate as servants of his beloved son and as those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen.